If you're visiting with us, we're in a series here at Big Valley Grace where we're walking through uh, Ephesians together. Ephesians was a, a letter that the great apostle Paul wrote to believers in a, in a town called Ephesus. Uh, he would have written the letter, as I've told you, you know, almost every weekend, and he would have sent that letter off. That letter would have arrived. The uh, pastor of that church would have opened it up. He would have read it and thought, wow, what a great, encouraging letter. And I'm sure there was a moment when he gathered the church together, obviously wasn't in a building like this, and he read that letter to them. And uh, I'm sure there were probably weeks upon weeks upon weeks where that pastor probably kept reading that letter, going through that letter. And we're doing the exact same thing. Paul wrote that letter about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're reading that letter too. And we're going through that letter also. And uh, so far, we've looked at 10 weighty truths. Uh, number one, we looked at the truth that God has blessed you, the truth that God has loved you, the truth that God has adopted you, the truth that God sent Jesus, his son, to shed his blood for you, the truth that God made his wisdom and understanding available to you, the truth that God revealed the mysteries of his will to you, the truth that God has given you his Holy Spirit to indwell you forever, the truth that, given, that God has given his power to you. And these are all found in, in, in chapter one. Then, then you get to chapter two, which we looked at last weekend, and it opens up with this great truth, the truth that God has brought us back from the dead, and that he's made us uh, alive. In other words, if you know Jesus as your savior, you're a new person. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter five, if anyone belongs to Christ, if anyone has given their life to Jesus Christ, if anybody has put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're, they're, they're a new creation. The old things have gone and everything is made new. And all of this, this making of you new, it comes from God. Beloved, if you've given your life over to Jesus Christ, you're a, a, a new person. Now, I know that there are times when you may not feel like you're a new person. I know that because there are many times in my life when I don't feel like a new person. Yes, I've given my life over to Christ. Yes, I've been made alive. I'm a new person. The old is gone. But there are many times in our walk with Christ when we may not feel like we're new. But the reality is, is that we are new. It doesn't matter how you feel. I often tell you that um, your, your feelings have no IQ. You can't educate your feelings for the most part, feelings are irrational. They're given to us by God, and I'm glad that I have them. But you always have to be careful that you don't make decisions about life based upon your feelings. What matters is, is the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. You know, somebody can cut you off on the freeway in, your, you know, in their car, and you may feel like ramming the back of them. But you probably don't want to take action on that feeling. You want to go, I got to get past the feeling. I'm a human being. God has given me a brain. I need to think here. What would be best, ramming the back of them? Or maybe just giving that feeling over to the Lord and saying, God, that, that, that certainly wouldn't honor you. You see, we as human beings have the capability to get beyond our feelings and go to a higher place, our brains, and, and think before we, um, we act. In John chapter 3, we get to listen in on a great conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. It says this in verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish uh, religious leader who was a Pharisee. He, he was dead. His, his heart was beating. His physical heart was beating, but his spiritual heart was dead. He hadn't been made alive yet. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. 
And the reason probably he came at night was he didn't want any of his religious buddies to know he was going to go have a conversation with Jesus. Um, I can remember as a kid, friends would invite me to church, and I was always embarrassed. I was always nervous that somebody was going to see me at church and think that I was like a church guy. And I would go to First Baptist's youth group, and you know, I'd go in, and you know, the first thing I was doing, I'd look around and go, oh no, there's Tommy. He's going he's gonna to think I'm like one of these church guys, one of these Jesus freaks, one of these Bible thumpers. He's going to think I'm born again. I, I know how Nicodemus felt. He knew that, man, if his buddies saw him, maybe they wouldn't invite him to the cool parties anymore. Maybe they'd make fun of him and ridicule him. But at least he makes the appointment. Rabbi, he said, we all know that you have been sent from God to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God's with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And by the way, that's a great question. Remember, Nicodemus is dead. He has no uh, capability of reasoning out spiritual things. He's dead. And so he, he well, Jesus, how, I'm an old guy. Look at me. Look at my hair. I got, I got hair growing out of my ears. My nose hair is growing. I, I, man, my, my legs are going out on me. My eyes are going. But I'm an old guy. How can I get back into my mother's womb to be born again? It didn't make any sense to him. It used to not make any sense to me either. Jesus replied, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. In other words, all that we can do as human beings is just produce other human beings and we're dead spiritually. Or we're alive physically, but only the Holy Spirit can come and make you alive. It's only when you're born again, born of God, that you become a new person. Where all of a sudden your spiritual heart's beating along with your, your, your physical heart. When you're, when you're born again, when you surrender your life over to Jesus Christ, you become a, a new person. You're, you're born again. You're no longer dead spiritually. You're, you're now alive in Jesus. You're, you're a, a new person because of your relationship with Jesus. That's truth, regardless of how you feel. Some of you woke up today on the wrong side of the bed. I don't know. You kicked the dog, you know, grumpy, didn't have any coffee. And maybe you don't feel like you're saved today. You don't feel like you're a new person. Well, if you know Christ, you are. That's truth. And that's the, the, the kind of truth that, that will set you free when you really get it. Now, I want to remind you that all these truths that I've just kind of shared are all a, a done deal. They're all a done deal. God, through the, the pen of the Apostle Paul, wanted you to know and understand your great position as a believer in Jesus. Now, right in the middle of these great thoughts or these great truths, we read these words in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God, so that you may grow in your understanding of these great truths that Paul has laid out. And the reason why Paul prays this is because the only way that you and I will ever begin to grasp these truths is by God opening up our spiritual eyes. Because if God doesn't open up your spiritual eyes to all of these things, these 10 truths and others, you know what, they're, they're just simply goobly gawk. They don't mean anything. They're, they're just kind of, you know, okay, so what? And so one of the great privileges that I have and that the pastors and elders of our church have is that we pray often, just like Paul prayed. 
that somehow the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to some of these unbelievable truths, that you would understand them in a deeper way, and in a deeper way, and in a deeper level. Because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit are you really going to get it. And it will literally change your life. Now, now the first three chapters of Ephesians really are all about our position in Christ. And then when you get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're given instructions on how we ought to live because of our position in Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, because of all these great truths, we've looked at ten of them so far, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to leave, lead a, a life worthy of your calling. So Paul is going to lay out all these great truths for us about who we are in Christ. And then he ends the letter by saying, now, now that you know all these unbelievable things, here's how you ought to live. In fact, Paul says, I beg you. The great apostle is begging the Christians to live honorable lives, God-honoring God lives. Another way of looking at it is like this. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 tell us all about the car, and Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are the road map for the car. You know, how and where and all that kind of stuff, the car ought to go and all of that. And I look forward to exploring these chapters in the future if God didn't come back. Now, today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. And I was thinking back on my Christian life and... Um, Obviously, you know, the first verse I ever memorized as a Christian was John 3.16. Probably that's true for most of you that know the Lord. But uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 were certainly right up there. They were certainly probably the first, you know, verses I ever memorized as a follower of Christ. It says this, God saved you, God made you alive by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done so that no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. And I want you to know that these verses are, are just just loaded with truth. And there's no way in one you know, message here I'm gonna unpack it, it all. But uh, they do tell us a lot about us. This past week, I, I made it very personal. They, they, tell, um, they tell me a lot about me and my life. They tell us about how this new life happens, how we're made alive, they tell me how I was made alive when I was dead. They tell us how we went from being dead to alive, and the first thing that, that I wanna do is point out this. N number one, a person is saved from the consequences of their sin. They're made alive by God's grace and God's grace alone. Verse eight says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this, this is a gift of God. In other words, my sins were forgiven not because of anything I did. <laughs> my sins were forgiven simply because of God's graciousness. I'm not going to heaven because of anything I did. I'm going to heaven simply because God is gracious. I wasn't made alive because of anything I did. I was made alive when I was dead simply because God is gracious. The Bible says this in Psalm 86. It's one of the great um, verses that kind of give us a, a thought about God, who he is. Very descriptive verse. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate God. You're a gracious God. You're a God that's slow to anger. You're a God that's abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness. That's a beautiful description of God. 
God is a gracious God. We're told throughout the scriptures that God is gracious. He's a God of grace, but what exactly is grace? What does it mean? Well, I've told you on a lot of different occasions that the word grace is without a doubt one of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. It's certainly one of the most complex words. I, I did a whole series on it, and the whole series just, you know, even just scratched the surface of how beautiful a word grace is, but also how complex a word it is. And we see the word grace, or the concept of grace, all throughout the Bible. So what does it mean? Well, there's a famous acrostic that I, help, uh, that, that I think helps us understand grace. It's a pretty good one. And it goes like this. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Most of you have probably seen that. And I think that's pretty good. God's riches at Christ's expense. All of these great truths that, 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 that God talks about, about me are just simply his riches, God's riches. And I got them at Christ's expense. That's it. Period. One theologian said this. He said the word grace means favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it and in spite of that, of what that person deserves. <laughs> And as I said, I thought a lot about my own life. The last thing that I deserved was God's favor. The last thing that I deserved was God's kindness or God's mercy. There was a time in my life when, when I didn't believe in God. There was a time in my life when I used God's name in vain all the time. There was a time in my life when I mocked people who went to church. There was a time in my life when I rebelled against the things of God. I didn't care what God had to say about life. There was a time in my life when I rebelled uh, uh, against God to the degree that I was worshiping other things other than God. Now, I didn't have a little, you know, Buddhist set up. I, I didn't, I didn't, there wasn't that kind of thing, but obviously there were things in my life that I worshipped. There was a time in my life when, when I was just dead in my sin. And what God should have done was he should have just wiped me off the planet. Last thing I deserved was for God to love me, show me mercy, show compassion to me. That's the last thing I deserved. <laughs> I knew I was a bad person. Oh, there were people that were much worse than me. I wasn't Charlie Manson, and I wasn't, you know, uh, uh, Hitler. I, I wasn't, you know, but, but trust me, I had never murdered anybody. Certainly thought about it a lot. <laughs> but I, I knew I was evil. I was, I was wretched. Last thing I deserved was God's favor, God's mercy, God's love. The last thing I deserved was God's riches at Christ's expense. <laughs> but that's exactly what God did. He freely extended grace to me. He freely extended his mercy to me. He, he freely extended his compassion to me, his forgiveness to me, his, his love to me. Romans chapter five says this, when we were utterly helpless, when I was utterly helpless, I was helpless. Christ came at just the right time when he died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. 
But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We were losers. We were evil. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. You see, we weren't right. I wasn't right in God's sight. I did some good things, you know. But I wasn't right. For since our friendship with God was restored, which means we weren't friends with God, by the death of his son while we were still enemies, will we certainly be saved through the life of his son? So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. It had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with anything I did. It was all God's riches at Christ's expense. Beloved, the reason I'm saved and going to heaven has nothing to do with me. I I couldn't do anything to make God owe me heaven. I couldn't do anything to, to live up to God's standard, which is perfection. Jesus said, but you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. I couldn't make God forgive me of my sin. I had offended God. The Bible says all of us have offended God by how we thought, how we, you know, how we talked, what we've done. Obviously, some people are more evil than others. I get it. But all of us had offended God. The Bible says this in Titus chapter 3. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, not because we came to church, not because we gave an offering, not because we did a bunch of good things, not because we became Eagle Scouts or whatever. There wasn't anything we did. It was simply because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life. We were made alive when we were dead. How? Simply through the Holy Spirit. We became new. We're a new creature, new creation. Beloved, grace is at the very heart of your relationship with God. It's at the very heart of your your faith or your belief in God. And I believe that the greater your understanding of grace, the greater and deeper and richer your your relationship with God will be. You'll want to be with him. You'll want to read his word. You'll want to pray. You'll want to do those things when you really understand grace. I believe the greater your understanding of grace, the more you'll be drawn to God, the more you're going to love God, the more you're going to be grateful to God, the richer your worship will be of God. You show me somebody who when that green little bag goes by and they go, give again. and That's somebody who has no clue what grace is. No understanding. Zero. You see, when that little green basket goes by and the word of God says, hey, I want you to honor me with your first fruits. I don't want it all, but just, hey, remember me. Is it any wonder that God says he loves a cheerful giver? (laughs) You know. That's just... The greater your understanding of grace, the more you'll want to live a life that honors him. And I know this is a hard thing for a lot of people. It was a, it was a hard thing for my dad. Um, my dad grew up in a particular religion that, 
you know, taught a lot about Jesus and all of that, but also there was this element of you had to do something. That somehow God's, you know, blood on the cross, uh, him walking out of the tomb alive, not quite good enough. That somehow he now had to add something to it. And my dad really struggled with that. And uh, about 15 or so years ago, he had uh, open-heart surgery, and uh, the pastor of the church went and visited him when he was in the hospital. And it just so happened that uh, all the nurses had left, and uh, our pastor had a chance to sit down with my dad for, for quite a while. I remember him telling me the story. It was a couple hours and he kind of laid out this whole idea that we're saved by grace and grace alone. And my dad just wrestled with that and wrestled with it. And it just can't be, you know, somehow I've got to do something. I, I've got to add something to the equation. And the pastor kept telling him, no, Pinky, there, there's nothing you can do. It's just simply, um, it's just simply by grace. And uh, there came a moment after a lot of spiritual warfare, I'm sure, in that hospital room that uh, my dad kind of grasped the concept. It was, I don't know, a few months later, we were uh, in a pool in our old worship pastor's backyard, Daryl Cummings, and here's the first picture of my, my dad's in the pool, and um, going to be baptized. The second picture shows him going under the water, and then the third picture is coming up uh, as a demonstration to this new life. Now, a uh, pastor uh, told me, hey, your dear dad is going to struggle with this concept of grace till the, till the day he meets the Lord. It's not like, hey, it's all different, you know, in one two-hour meeting. And certainly I, I, he did. But he, he came to grips with it to some level that we're simply saved by grace and grace alone. And now that photo, I, I actually have those three photos in my office, and they mean a lot to me today, especially. My dad is in hospice care. And I could get a phone call uh, right now saying that he has taken his last breath here on planet Earth. And uh, I know what will happen when he takes his last breath. As D.L. Moody said, if you ever get a report that I've died, it isn't true. It's a lie. I'm more alive at that moment than I've ever been. And, um, you know, that, that'll be the case with my father. He, he, he doesn't have much time left on this planet but it's still, death is still the great enemy. It's painful. Even though you know where they're going to go, it's still painful. And I was over there late last night, and when I'm done here, I'll go over to the house and just sit with them. And I have this great photograph that I took of me and my, my, my dad, and he's in a bed, and then, and then my, uh, my son. There's three generations of countrymen's, and I told my son, we were looking at the picture, and I said, son, I want you to understand something. In Genesis chapter three, sin entered the world, and because of that, th this photograph's gonna just continue to go, and there'll be a day I'll be in the bed, you'll be next to me, and your son will be here. And then if God doesn't come back, there'll be a moment when you'll be in the bed, your son will be next to you, and your grandson will be here. Because of what took place in Genesis chapter three, Sin, get, you know, sin causes us all to die, and you're watching that happen to your grandfather. And someday it will happen to me, and someday it will happen to you. It's good to teach our kids the truth, the reality of life, death, sin, all those uh, kinds of things. Well, number two. Though salvation is a free gift from God and God alone, a person has to believe that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is their only hope of salvation from their sin. Verse 2, uh, or verse 8, once again, God saved you by his grace. And when did it happen? What was the, what was the, the, the thing that unleashed it all? When you believed. When you believed. You can't take credit for this. That's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done so that none of us can boast. Beloved, believing what God has said, having faith in what God has said is the key that unlocks the door to heaven. 
if I go out and I purchase a, a gift card, uh, uh, you know, for, for you, uh, my friend Gordon Lucas is sitting back there, and if I said, hey, Gordon, I went to the mall, and I got a $1,000 gift card right here. You can go to any store in the mall. You can pick up anything you want. It's an absolute free gift. I'm just going to give it to you. It doesn't mean anything if Gordon didn't come up here and take it. Gordon could sit there and say, ah, I don't believe that. There's no way, countryman, you went out and bought a $1,000 gift card. I don't believe that. I don't want your gift card. I'll go out and spend my own money. I'll do my own thing. I don't want your gift card. Well, if he doesn't want the gift card, if he doesn't believe that this card really has a 1000 bucks on it, and he doesn't come up here and just take the free gift, then it doesn't mean anything. It has no impact on his life. He doesn't get the benefits of the, the, the card. See, it means nothing unless you believe what, what I said is true. It doesn't mean anything if you don't believe what God has said is true. It doesn't mean anything if you don't come and receive the gift. In other words, the, the only way the, the, the gift card means anything is if you believe that my offer is real and then respond to that belief by coming up and receiving it. See? Here's the bottom line. The Bible says that salvation is a free gift from God to you, and you either believe what the Bible says and by faith receive that gift from God, or you don't believe what the Bible says and you keep trying to make God happy by working real hard to gain you know, his, uh, his approval so that someday when you die, you, know, you, you hope you'll let you into heaven. You know, I'm gonna keep doing all these good things and here's all the good things I've done. I'm gonna keep doing good things and oh, crud, I had a bad thought, I said a bad word, I did something bad, oh, I'm gonna keep doing, whew. And then finally there you are standing before the Lord. Oh, you wish I'd have done one more good, oh, oh down elevator, you know. Woohoo! What a crummy thought that is. When everybody look at those last six words of verse nine, so that no one can boast, you see that? If you could do good works to get into heaven, if all you had to do was be a good person or do a bunch of good things in this life to get into heaven, you could boast about what you did to get there. So you could brag about all the good things you did to earn heaven when you finally got there. I, mean, I, I, could, I just could imagine, you know, we're all in heaven, you know? I see my friend Rick Hanks, hey Ricky, woo, we're in heaven, what'd you do to get here? Oh, man, I gave lots of money to the church. All right. Well, let me tell you what I did. I did this to get to heaven. Hey, Gordon, what would you do to get to heaven? Oh, man, I walked a whole bunch of, you know, old people across the road. I did all kinds of cool things. Oh, man, woo! And we're all up there talking about all the great things we did. And then Jesus walks up. Hey, guys, what's going on? Oh, we're just talking about all the great things we did to get into heaven. See, see isn't that weird? Could you imagine that moment if somehow your good works could get you there? And you, you could talk about all the good things you did to get to heaven. See, it, it just doesn't make any sense. That's why the Bible nowhere talks about your good works somehow saving you. It's all a, a God's riches at Christ's expense. It's all about God's favor, period. It's just a free gift that you receive. I just couldn't imagine, you know, Sam up, hey, Sammy, woo! How'd you get here, Sammy? Oh, man, I went down to the gospel mission, and I did a lot of great things down at the gospel mission. Man, fantastic, brother. I guess we could all look at Jesus and go, man, what a waste of time that was on the cross. Guy, I guess the father really didn't know what he was doing there, man. All that gore and blood and all that stuff. Let me just tell you, beloved, and I know most of you get this. I will go as far as to say that it's, it's blasphemous to think that somehow you could do something to get your, yourself into heaven. 
I think it's blasphemous if you try to add anything to what Jesus did. And yet there's lots of churches, denominations, that they'll talk about Jesus. You can't miss Jesus in here. You, you can't miss all of that. I mean, there's a reason why there's a cross, right? There's a reason why we celebrate Christmas and Easter. Those are big moments. Somehow God invades humanity, right? And then dies and rises again. But somehow they come along then and they add this element of you, you now have something to play. You have a role to play. You got to be good. That's, that's, just, that's just really, really evil, evil. I've had many conversations with some pastors in our town that believe that. They're evil. They're evil. It's almost like I need to go home and take a shower when I'm done. They're just evil. And they got a church, and they got a pulpit. They even have this Bible. Got choirs, sing songs, take an offering. Got missionaries, they're evil. You're simply gonna be in heaven someday because of what Jesus Christ did, period. Now you gotta receive that by faith. If you don't receive it, you don't want the gift, then God says, okay, you don't get the gift. He's not gonna force you to take the gift if you don't want it. Romans chapter 4 says, so the promise, that salvation, is received by faith. It, it, it is given as a free gift. It's a free gift. Because God's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. I often have people come up to me and say, I don't see how you know, God could condemn good people to go to hell. <laughs> and I always say, hold on, he got it wrong. The story of the Bible is we're all condemned to go to hell. There are no good people. We're all sinful. We're all evil. Some are just more evil than others. We're all doomed. But God is so loving and full of mercy and, and compassion, you know, compassionate that he sent his son to fix the problem. You, you got the story mixed up. We're all condemned because of our sin. How in the world is God going to let sinful people into heaven? I mean, imagine that. As I tell you all the time, if God led sinful people into heaven, heaven would be just like planet Earth in two minutes. Now, I want to bring your attention to something that I always thought was interesting, and I guarantee you probably had never heard a preacher say this. After Jesus died and was resurrected, okay, he now is in his new glorified body, he has an encounter with lots of people, but there was one encounter that he has in John chapter 20 with one of his disciples named Thomas. Jesus has showed up, and uh, all the disciples got to see Jesus. Uh, they all go to Thomas and say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, man, I wasn't there, and I don't believe it unless I see it. I want to see the guy. I want to put my, 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 my hand, my finger in his hole, you know, in his side and all that. I don't believe it says this in John 20. Thomas, called uh, Didymus, who was one of the 12, was not with them when they saw Jesus. The other followers kept telling Thomas, we saw the Lord, but Thomas said, I will not believe it until I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand uh, into his side where they jammed him with the spear. A week later, the followers were at the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came in and stood right there with them. In other words, he's in his new glorified body. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hands here in my side. Stop, you know, being an unbeliever and believe. Okay? Here's something I guarantee you, most of you, probably all of you, never thought about. Jesus is in his new glorified body. Why does he still have holes in his hands? Why does he still have a hole in his side? Why does he still have the wound on his foot or his ankles, his feet? 
He told Thomas, hey, Thomas, here I am. I'm, uh, I've been resurrected. Here's my new glorified body. There it is, Thomas. Go ahead. You can put your finger in there now. So the wounds were still there. Why? Let me tell you what I think. I think when you get to heaven, when I get to heaven, we're going to see the Lord. He's still going to have those wounds. I think it's because he doesn't want you to ever forget how you got there. You got here because of my sacrifice. You're here because of what I did. Not because of anything you did. It's because of these wounds right here. That's how you're here. That's how it all happened. Now here's where the, the story gets a little bit weird when I get to number three, okay? Number three is this. Yes, you're saved by grace and grace alone, and yes, you have to receive the gift, the free gift. When a person believes and is saved from the consequences of their sin, they're, they're made of life, they become God's poem on display for the entire world to see. Verse 10 says, for we are God's masterpiece, Christian. He offered you a free gift. You received the gift by faith. You've been made alive, and so you're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew. Remember, you're, you're new. So that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. There is a place for good deeds. There's a place for good works. Not in, as it relates to your salvation. Just that. You're now a believer. You're a follower of Jesus. That, that word masterpiece there is the word pomea. And that's where we get our English word poem. So if we're the poem, God's the poet. And the thing about a poet is that a poet seeks to express himself in beautiful terms which is what God wants to do with us. He wants to express himself in beautiful terms to the world through your one life. God wants to transform you into a, a beautiful expression of his love and grace and mercy. God wants to transform you into a, a beautiful expression of his kindness and compassion. God wants to transform you into a, a beautiful life, a life that honors him. And how will you know when your life has been transformed into a poem that really expresses something that honors the poet, if you will? Well, Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. The poem that God wants you to live out in your life is one in which you live like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You listen like Jesus. The things that made Jesus happy make you happy. The things that made Jesus angry make you angry. You just become like Jesus. The more you become like Jesus, the greater your life expresses what the poet, what God wants. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, when you produce much fruit, you are truly my disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father when you produce his fruit. Philippians chapter 2 says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. In other words, the poet's inside of you writing a beautiful poem with your life that expresses his love, his graciousness, his mercy, his compassion to the world. See. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. For no end? No. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
There's a reason why we're being taught what is right, what is wrong. There's a reason why God does that. You're his masterpiece. You're his, his poem to the world. You're the one that God uses to somehow tell others about his beauty, his majesty, his love, compassion, whatever all those things might, might be. Dr. MacArthur said this, he said, although they have no part in gaining salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out salvation. No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. God has ordained that we then live lives of good works, works done in the power, uh, in his power and for his glory. You see, good works, living out a godly life, has a role to play for us as believers. Not as it relates to salvation, but as it relates to expressing whatever it is he wants to express to the world. One of the, one of the great passages in Scripture is Jesus said, it's, it'll be your love for one another that tells the world that you're one of my disciples. See, how we live matters. Not just this and what we believe, that the devil believes, the demons believe, and they even believe to the degree where they shudder. When they think about God and his word, they have a visceral reaction to it. I have met a lot of believers that don't even shudder when they think about the Word of God. It ought to have a, a it ought to mean something to us that we've been saved by grace and grace alone. It ought to motivate us then to say, God, how can I live out a life that would bring honor and glory to, to you? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the light of the world, Christian. Like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. That, that'd be stupid. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where, where it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your good deeds, let the, let the poem of your life shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. You see? God wants to use us. Uh, one of our presidents, one of our great presidents, uh, George Bush says that, you know, used this expression, a thousand, a thousand points of light. Remember that? A thousand points of light. That's what we're to be, Christians. It's a thousand points of light. We're the light out there. We're it. But I think too often, you know, we, 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 we aren't a thousand points of light. We, we put, you know, a basket over our light, and what good does that do? No, God wants you to now go out and live a God-honoring life. The Bible says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, how you live. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message he says, don't you see that you can't keep on living however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? So let people see God in and through your body. Isn't that beautiful? So here you have this great passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that begins with you are simply saved. You're made alive by God's grace and God's grace alone. That's it. We didn't deserve it. <laughs> None of us did. I don't care how good you think you are or were. None of us deserved it. And God said, here it is. And by faith, we received it. And at that moment, wow, our sins were forgiven. The Holy Spirit was, you know, came, came into our lives. We're going to go to heaven someday. And now God says, hey, you be my poem to the world. 
I want to express myself through, through you. So we are to have and live, you know, have good works. We're to live God-honoring lives. Not that it would save us, but that it would represent him to, to the world. Over in the venue, I want you to stand. Everybody here stand. And I just want you to close your eyes for just a second. And don't, don't pray. You know, I just want you to be quiet and be alone for a moment. Don't, don't worry about your spouse or anybody who's standing next to you or whatever. And I'll end maybe by asking you a question just in this quiet moment. What does the poem of your life express to the world? We gathered up your neighbors, we gathered up the people that you work with, or we gathered up those that you play golf with or tennis with. We were to say, hey, listen, how does so-and-so's life, what does it express to you? What would they say? That's a weighty question. I know what God wants it to say. And you do too. And I know most of you just live unbelievably beautiful, godly lives. Thank you. But if you're here and you're going, wow, pastor, that just kills me when I think about it. Hey, there's good news. God forgives us of our sin. God will forgive you. And it doesn't take a lot. You just simply say, God, man, I've kind of fumbled this thing. I haven't been a very good poem. <laughs> and I want, to, I want to be different, God. Help me. Help me to express you to the world better. Maybe you ought to go into the altar room and let one of our pastors, elders, pray for you. Maybe you ought to think about getting involved in one of our Bible studies, men's, women's, CR. Those be all good things that you could do to help live out your faith better, maybe. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time to, together here. And man, I, I enjoyed last night singing and giving and praying and hanging out with believers. That's, it's just is great. And I hope that somehow, as we have met, that as people walk out of here, they'd be encouraged, Lord. That they'd be encouraged to live God-honoring lives. Thanks for your goodness to us. You're good, you're good, you're good, and you're worthy of every moment of this that we've given you today, God. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Hey,